It's the Greg Proops Film Club once again taking to the ether under the vast awning and protective uh, offices that are the smartest man in the world vodcast. My name is Greg Proops and we're broadcasting live tonight from cinema's hallowed halls here in the gracious baseball hat district of Los Angeles. <laughs> Fairfax Avenue from CineFamily, ladies and gentlemen, where it is the app. Where we keep motion pictures alive. We're shooting uh, uh, the audience here tonight. Uh, when I say shooting, I mean recording. When I mean recording, I mean putting it on wax. And when I mean putting it on wax, I mean the new style. Four and three and two and one. When I'm on the mic, the suckers all run. What I mean is, of course, uh, we're going to clip gaily along here tonight. And we're recording uh, the show live. So we're going to show the movie. But you may want to queue up Annie Hall. Go Netflix it. Or I'm sure if you go on YouTube, someone's downloaded Annie Hall in a pretty high-quality form that you can glom into for free. As you know... Uh, Time is really wasting. Um, there's no guarantee. We gotta fight the powers that be. So uh, it's time for you to steal a movie off the interweb at my behest. <laughs> this is, after all, the Greg Proops Film Club, not the Greg Proops Hall Pass. What that was signed two months ago. Fucking, you can't go in that room club. <laughs> my film club's rules are, are twofold. One, smoke a J in the parking lot. Two, what the fuck ever. Those are the two rules of the Greg Proops Film Club. Dive in and enjoy. Be, a, be an otter in a pond of celluloid. Ooh, that's a shitty metaphor, and it makes me kind of creeped out. <laughs> Kittens, I'll have none of that tonight. Keep it to yourself. Uh, we're, we're showing Annie Hall tonight, but what I don't want to talk about is Annie Hall, which is a, a, a peerlessly made... Uh, the, here's, the, here's the ground rules for tonight's discussion of Annie Hall. One, Woody Allen's life stops after this movie is made cinematically. <laughs> These are the parameters we are laying down tonight. There'll be no discussion of even Hannah and her sisters or Broadway Danny Rose, which are both tremendous Woody Allen movies. We're not going past the moment he did not pick up his Oscar. Because that's the greatest moment of his contrarian career. After that, so many things happened that we're not going into. Uh, we're going to leave it the big black space in the diary where your uncle used to live. <laughs> Remember that time he... Yeah, I do. I sold that car. Nobody lives in that part of the building anymore. So we're not going to do that. Uh, but up till then, Wowzers McTavish. And here's my gig. Uh, I often mention uh, that uh, I, I'm old. I don't see I have any choice. Yeah. Um, old enough to remember all the movies from the 70s. This may not come as a surprise to some of you because I think of myself as a bon viveur, uh, much like James Bond in the movie Skyfall. I walk into a room with a blue suit, perfectly realized, and a squared off collar while a lot of shitty dialogue goes, and then you hope the song plays again. Um, is my life. Secondly, uh, I, I remember the 70s. I, I was... I was the film critic for my high school paper, okay? I don't know how big a douchebag you have to be to be one, but I did. Not the whole time, not for all four years. I didn't have an office. My name wasn't Martin. I didn't wear a visor. I didn't wear, uh, 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 what are those called? Garters, you know, arm garters. I didn't have uh, ink-stained thumbs and shit like that and go, hold it, Skipper, come back here. I got some new shit on the reincarnation of Peter Proud. I've just reassessed it cinematically. There was none of that. Uh, but I did review the, the reincarnation of Peter Proud, which is a fine... First of all, a lot of people are young. And uh, I thought that I could be esoteric right off the bat when I started this Greg Proops Film Club. But now I realize not everybody is on the same uh, uh, frame. Some of us are, are behind. Some of us have never seen a black and white movie. Some of us have never watched a movie with lots of dialogue in it that didn't have Megan Fox in it. <laughs> There are many, you know, experiences of the cinematic uh, thing that we call film. And so I'm here to, oh, we're going to start at square one on everything. And I don't want to insult anybody. In other words, this will be fun for the kids as well as the adults. It's like baby Einstein. 
I don't even know what baby Einstein is, but I heard someone talk about it. Someone, I think, who possessed a child. I don't possess a child, but if I did, I would possess them like Linda Blair was possessed in an awesome 70s movie called The Exorcist. In other words, when I fed them in the morning, I would have them spin their head around in a furious 360-degree manner and pupe out the most venomous, horrible, green, maple-looking, zillion-year-old groats that could ever be skadoodled out of someone into a Swedish Oscar-potential-winning actor's eyeglasses and a playwright of some renown. That is what I would do were I to direct the movie, and as it, as it happens, it, it, fortunately for us, Fortuosity, uh, which is from a movie called The Happiest Millionaire, which I think is from the late 60s. It doesn't quite qualify. But let's go back and discuss what cinema was and is through my expert eyes as a child. Um, that was a joke, of course, but I understand you're a film crowd. Believe me, people out in Proopcast land right now who are listening somehow on a treadmill or while they're making tea... <laughs> Even though they should actually be in front of their television set getting ready to queue up the fucking movie or in front of their computer or on a train traveling across Belgium with weird Euro music playing in the background like you know, like that. And they eat a weird candy that's got, oh, this has got hazelnuts in it. Those are freaky. Uh, right? Those are the circumstances under which people are listening to this. Uh, and all I can say is, uh, Columbia is a little disappointed in your reaction so far tonight. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. The 60s ended about 1973, for anyone who remembers. <laughs> I was a child. I wasn't in Vietnam or any of that. I'm not going to lay that on you. This isn't a Nick Nolte character. This isn't the last... <laughs> oh, God damn it. <laughs> The government made me into a killing machine. <laughs> sure, I like to have a drink once in a while, but why can't a cowboy... <laughs> and then Eddie Rabbit plays. Well, I love the rainy nights. I love the rainy nights. I love that. That's what you think 70s cinema is, but it's better than that. Although Nick Nolte is a stanchion of 70s cinema. He stands like the North Tower of the Golden Gate Bridge, holding the fucking errant, faggy South Tower shit together. <laughs> oh, magic booze! <laughs> I send for you. Come forth. From deep inside the globe of cinema. All over the world, pictures are made. Iran, Persia, before it was Iran, other places that are hard to pronounce, Burbank, Culver City. So then the 70s started, and we had awesome movies. For instance, uh, Oh, you can laugh all you like, little skimpies. When you look back at the early 2010s, what was this decade going to be called? What is, when the history of this decade is poorly tweeted, what will it be called? <laughs> is this the 2010s or something? Or the 2010s? Or the fucking whatevs? Or the fucking Instagram failed? Or the I sent a picture of my boner and regret it decade? What decade is this going to be? So many horrible happenstances. Uh, the time that a cop goes rogue and you're on the other side on that one, you're not actually on the cop side because they're acting so weird. It's that decade. In any case, and let this be the last of it. Last of it. I, uh, I, uh, I think that I think it's time we move on uh, and talk about some of the bitch in 70s movies. We had, for instance, as I say, you can laugh. If you're going to defend now, and you're going to defend now with Transformers 2 and shit like that, and uh, 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 X-Men Gather Together, or whatever the last one was called, <laughs> all these for Green Lantern 18 and shit, you don't have a leg to fucking stand on. You're a tiny sperm going up the most difficult fucking fallopian tube that ever existed that's made out of morphing, translucent, fucking yawn de bont, fucking, you know, yeah, tita titanium. There's a big ball of denia at the end of that fucking thing, right? Like unobtainium or whatever. It's a bummer. Your decade's a bummer. My decade's awesome. Why, Greg? Why? Okay, first of all, Silent Running with Bruce Dern, where they took all the plants that were left on Earth into space, 
to preserve them. And then the corporation said, fuck it, we're going to use them for something else. Destroy all the plants. And Bruce Dern went, no, there's going to be a forest forever. And flew away from the sun. Shitty plan. <laughs> if you were listening to what I said, he had all the plants on Earth in a spaceship and he flew away from the sun. Disappointment was bound to set in in a couple of weeks. All the plants, their own poo. That one has three robots called uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie that are beyond the pale of good. They play a poker game in that movie, and Bruce Dern, Bruce Dern plays the ecological hero. You have no idea what the 70s were like. He didn't always play a series of buck-toothed psychopaths who killed John Wayne and fucking had horrible Congress with, you know. No, he also played an uh, ecological warrior who wore a dashiki and carried a spade <laughs> in the movie Silent Running. Um, they've never showed a Woody Allen movie here at the Cinefamily, is my understanding. I was informed tonight by uh, a reliable source. And that shocks me to the very core of my being. Having grown up in the 70s and gone to pictures for the entirety of the 10 years of the 70s, or is it nine years? How long is a decade? A deck. There's 52 years in a decade. And every, every heart I turned over in every club, uh, there was always a Woody Allen movie. Every movie theater showed two movies, right? If it was any good at all, plus you were little, and so you wanted more money for your 75 cents or dollar or whatever. You were never going to go to a theater where they were just showing one movie. That was for grownups. So every movie theater, the second bill, it would be like Freebie and the Bean and then um, Everything You Want to Know About Sex by Woody Allen. Well, yeah, Freebie and the Bean had Alan Arkin and James Caan. Um, when does comedy begin, Greg? The minute I cast that fucking movie, you guys. <laughs> James Caan, Sonny from The Godfather, Alan Arkin, uh, Yossarian from Catch-22, and every ethnic character of the 70s and 80s before Tony Shalhoub. Alan Arkin played the Tony Shalhoub card. Are you Armenian? No, I'm Mexican this time, but usually I'm Greek. Akeem Tamaroff did it in the 50s. There's a different actor every decade to fill in for that part. Hello, my name is Pascodorian. <laughs> Welcome to my bar. <laughs> Would you like some opium? No, Gin? How about a picture of the lady? <laughs> uh, then uh, there would be movies like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Thunderbolt and Lightfoot had uh, Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges playing a bank robbery team who used an enormous gun to blow the door off the bank. Okay, it doesn't. If I'd been pitching it, I'd react the same way you guys were right now. <laughs> that movie got fucking made, and I saw it, and everyone who's my age in this room saw it more than once. <laughs> so don't even fucking pretend you didn't. Everyone in this room saw hard times with Charles Bronson and James Coburn when they were my age, except for the million people who aren't my age who saw Everlasting Story and got a boner or whatever. <laughs> trying to hit you to some 70s stuff. There's references. Uh, first of all, Diane Keaton is uh, unbelievably awesome. She won Best Actress for this movie. And as you know, comedies are never rewarded. This was a comedy that won straight across the board. Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Screenplay, and Best Director. And uh, Woody Allen didn't win Best Actor. <laughs> um, <laughs> he also didn't show up at the ceremony. I think he was playing at that horrible Dixieland gig he does with his bad clarinet playing or whatever, where he, he tests the limits of our endurance of how much we love him as an artist by stringing out a series of notes that are completely unsupportable as a musician that make you go, but in one case, you're extraordinarily funny, perceptive, and you spoke to me as a, a youth, and therefore my life has been changed comedically I've learned about sophistication and also dick gags at the same time and then on the other hand you, you force me into a corner to accept you playing traditional jazz with a group of alcoholics that I don't know neither would I go to that bar under any circumstances unless Eddie Egan from the original French Connection movie stuck a snub nosed revolver to my head after pulling it out of his ankle holster while having a dude named fucking Squiggy Bear fucking go, yeah, y'all got my shit up in the street, bro And the soundtrack went, wah, 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 wah. and there was, there was fires in garbage cans. That would have been the last time I accepted that bullshit. <laughs> but I'm not accepting it now. Uh, Diane Keaton is fantastically groovy in this movie. 
Uh, understand this before you watch it. It's her wardrobe from her closet. Ralph Lauren made all the clothes, I think. They probably had some pieces they threw in. The costumer, whose name I don't know, because I don't study. I bring it to you off the top of my fucking head. Um, it's Ruth somebody. She, uh... Uh, uh, apparently protested because Diane Keaton's clothes were too crazy and they were like, no. Woody went like, no. She knows what she's doing. So, groove on the wardrobe. In my life, when I saw this picture, I was like 17, 16, 17. Uh, I was in high school. And uh, up until then, I'd worn what they called, I don't know, like wire rim glasses. Not, not like, I didn't wear like John Sebastian, you know, fucking, welcome back. I didn't wear like, yeah, I didn't do that. I didn't have the round, you know, I didn't go John Lennon, Watergate hearings. I didn't go Mark Maron. I, I, went, I went the horrible square, those ones, you know, that were metal. And uh, yeah, someone just went, oh. Yeah, you know what? What the magical powers of uh, rectangular wire rim glasses of the 70s were was that they made the wearer of them absolutely unfuckable under any circumstances. You had created what could only be described as a force shield that kept women from enjoying your company. So, uh, when Annie Hall came out, she caused a sensation, like, uh, like you're under sedation. She wore vests and ties and khaki pants and giant hats and giant, giant sunglasses. So, I got a big pair of giant glasses. And all the cool people in my life would go, Annie Hall, when, I saw, when they saw me in them. And all the douchewads in my life would go, Elton John! <laughs> That was during the pinball wizard portion of his career. So you can imagine the indignity. I wonder if you can. I wonder if you wonder. Marshall McLuhan has mentioned that we're going to talk about some of the references in this movie. You guys have seen it a million times, but think about the poor person who's sitting out uh, uh, in, a, in a garbage pile in Ghana. Their only entertainment, a uh, banana peel that they found from two days ago in this podcast. <laughs> think of, why don't you reach out with your heart to them like Sally Struthers would have instructed you to do, you fucking... There was no pitch at the beginning of the show, by the way, for Cinefamily and how they always begged for money and whatnot to buy seats and stuff. Like seats or some big extra treat in a movie theater that you should pay for? Like airlines charge you for bringing luggage now? It's like, you're an airline. How was I going to come? With a toothbrush? What am I? A slut from 1967? Jesus Christ. I'm bringing stuff. Come to a movie theater. I expect to sit. What is this? A row of sticks? Like we're in Pow Pow New Guinea at a fucking manhood fucking initiation ceremony and I have to take some sort of hideous route that makes me vomit all night and then cut my wrists open and paint a fucking tattoo around my eyes and whatnot and then gaze at the sun until it turns into a lizard. That's how I fucking have to deal when I come to Fairfax fucking Avenue. I was going to go to Canners afterward and order an antique sandwich and go to the kibitz room and try my luck with some sad fucking other fucking loser from this street who'd been whatever you guys whatever seriously this show can be ended here Jerusalem's not builded yet not without you slaves people are really laughing that are listening on their headphones well that makes two that makes Columbia there's a lot of uh, references that get made in this movie. I'm not presuming you don't know them. I'm presuming everyone doesn't fucking know them. These will make the jokes funnier. I'm not blowing the jokes, nor am I doing any of the lines from the movie. Marshall McLuhan was a commodities aesthetician of the early 70s and a, uh, a social commentator of some renown. His book was called The Medium is the Message, right? And uh, he called television cool cool medium because you can sit in your bed and watch it and whatnot. That's all you need to know. Marcel O'Fools, the sorrow and the pity. Marcel O'Fools' father, Max O'Fools, made Laurent. They escaped from Germany in the 30s uh, before the Nazi invasion. That's all you need to know about that. Um, Leopold and Loeb <laughs> are two teenage 
uh, high school, early college boys from the 20s who concocted the perfect crime. They are depicted in two movies, Rope by Alfred Hitchcock and Compulsion by whomever it is. Uh, Clarence Darrow was their defense lawyer. Um, they met a boy, they clocked a boy every day at a schoolyard uh, in an attempt to commit the perfect murder against him. The day the boy didn't show, they did the murder anyway against another boy. And uh, apparently, according to legend, sexually violated him before dispensing of him in a more horrific way than I hope you can possibly imagine. Therefore, when the joke comes up, you'll remember what I just told you and it'll be even fucking funnier. <laughs> the Godfather's mentioned in this movie. Diane Keaton is in both Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 and snoodles in again in Godfather 3. They mention quaaludes in this movie. Quaaludes, yeah. Thank you. Cheers, bitches. The ouch! Quaaludes were awesome. They made you feel drunk, but you didn't drink anything. So you'd take one and you'd be like, wow, I'm really holding it together. And then you were that person, the person except you were wearing velvet bell bottoms and a fucking open Kiana shirt and had a cane and your name was Nightman. Yeah, that's what the 70s were like, you guys. I had a belt buckle with a mushroom on it. It didn't have my name on it. It didn't have my name on it. It didn't have my name on it. I had a mushroom belt buckle that I wore with my hair parted down the middle. It was really long, like, like Ian Hunter from the Mata Hoople. Quaaludes were important, and they... Can we have a little less chit-chat in Sector 5? What the fuck's going on in this audience? Are we invading Dunkirk here? Holy cow, it turned into Antietam out there for a moment. Boys is dying all around, Colonel. 54 is the only family I got. I love the 54s. Qualuds. Uh, Fellini's mentioned. Fellini was a filmmaker. You think I'm being patronizing? If you're English, you think I'm being patronizing. There are people listening to this who haven't the slightest notion who Fellini is. It's no fault of their own. They might be 13 listening in a blanket fort right now. <laughs> they need to know who Fellini is. His name was Federico Fellini. He made pictures for a zillion years. Uh, I don't know what his first picture was. I think one of the early ones is the White Sheik. I remember seeing that. He carried on until the mm, 80s? 80s. Uh, La Dolce Vita, La Strada. What can you say about Federico Fellini? The idea of a nun walking along while the music goes. And then a midget walks by. And then a fat lady. And someone comes by on a unicycle. Then someone's wearing a mask. And then Giulietta Messina goes. He did it all, baby. You need to know about that. The other movie that was up for Best Picture this year that, w that Annie Hall beat was a little movie called Star Wars. Here's the difference. Not only am I going to talk about George Lucas post-1978, I'm going to sing his praises. Are you talking about the three prequels to the original three Star Wars movies? No, I am not. Even though, yes, I appear in one of them as a voice. <laughs> What I'm talking about is George Lucas's immense largesse in the Bay Area and San Francisco and in general and in large. As you know, he concocted one of the biggest Hollywood deals in, in ever. Uh, 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 Jesse Lasky would have gotten a Viagra hard on so quickly that his aorta would have imploded had he made this deal. Uh, uh, I, I, I dare say Bob Evans stays up at night doing the math of it like a chess problem. <laughs> George Lucas sold the Star Wars franchise to Disney for epic billions and took every cocking dime of it and gave it to education. No one has ever done that in the history of Hollywood. He said he had enough money. I'd like to repeat that sentence because we're in L.A. He said he had enough money. You're not intimating that someone can possess enough money, are you, Greg? No, I'm merely stating that a human with a lot of money said it recently. <laughs> and that maybe there's a short, formidable poem in that that could be etched in marble in everyone's soul. When they reach a certain level in this fucking town. Are you speaking of yourself as well, Greg? Even though you're not holding me? Yes. <laughs> he said he had enough money. He also... 
uh, the Presidio in San Francisco, if you've ever been to San Francisco, and I only speak of it because uh, I was there for Sketchfest and then I was there for some other gigs. Sketchfest runs 18, 19 weeks a year now. It's almost ongoing. It's like Teatro Zucchini or whatever that's on the wharf. It's just always there. Uh, in any case, um, uh, they, uh, uh, they had, uh, we went to the Presidio, and it's a beautiful part of San Francisco right next to the Golden Gate Bridge. He invested a whole bunch of money and put um, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, or what do they call DreamWorks or whatever, is, is in Letterman Hospital there, and he gave them a lot of money. And that's why they were able to fulfill uh, their destiny and be a national park there. Uh, isn't that enough about George Lucas? Not quite. <laughs> he was dead nice. And I've never said this before in any interview or any program. He was quite nice as a director. There, I've said it. He directed me for a couple of lines, and this was his direction. You want to do it again? (laughs) And I went, all right. I'll be honest. What I said was, okay, George. He was so nice. Ben Sean is mentioned in this movie. Ben Sean uh, is an illustrator of the highest caliber who uh, uh, did, was also uh, an, worked with Diego Rivera and uh, was a lefty, and that's why the joke is in there. My wife helped me with that reference. Obviously, I'm not smart enough to know that one. If you wish to email me, it's smartestatespecialthing.com. We're not answering questions tonight, only in an impromptu ad hoc manner after the show with this crowd of disappointed 70s film fans. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I like to take my – I'm a dick. And if you wish to uh, uh, email me personally, poisonly, and uh, reach out and touch me, fanmail4greg at gmail.com, and I will answer uh, your email when I get fucking around to it. Why don't you rent an apartment that's off my scrotal sock? That's what I advise you to do geographically, all right? And stop asking comparison questions. Would you rather have your eye poked out or watch fucking, you know, fucking Pirates of the Caribbean again? Like, no, 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 that's not a question, all right? That's a horrible elliptical conundrum you painted of your own unimaginative bullshit is what that is. Ask a real question like, do you want me to mail you dope into what address? Because the answer is yes, and the address I will give out off the air. We will be in Nashville. The show will already have played by then. We'll be in Omaha, Nebraska on the 2nd of March. Uh, it's also, as you know, uh, it's Fistuary. We've already had Manuary. We're heading towards Slarch. And uh, on the 2nd of Slarch, we'll be in Omaha. Then on the 10th, we'll be at the Laughing Skull Lounge in Atlanta, Georgia, IA. Uh, we'll be at, uh, in Paris at La Java on the 21st of um, March. And then in London at the Soho Theater on the 25th of March. And um, uh, then the 7th of April at the parlor in Bellevue. So we do come back to Earth. People say to me, Greg, and then they make a weird slot machine Star Wars telephone noise. I smell an app. Douche baguette, the app? Someone's phone went off, it's cool. You guys are busy and shit, I get it, we're in LA. You're only doing this for credit, no credit to you. You can get to Paramount tomorrow and fucking fix shit. We thought you were heading toward wrapping it up. Not now. You have a phone go off? I have shit I need to think about. Shouldn't you have thought of it before and and, and come to a conclusion on a tight-ass ending? I had. until errant fucking frequency threw its random ass into the ring. (laughs) What if they just forgot to turn it off, Greg? Why are you punishing all of us by postponing the beginning of the movie? Because it's in my power and I'm a corporal? (laughs) I'm joking, of course. It's just about over. Thank you for listening to all that. We also have t-shirts now. If you go to my site, gregproops.com or proopcast.com, I want to thank you for listening to the show. And, of course, it's free to download at any time you wish. All of the episodes, I believe, going back to 1973 when we first started on this show. (laughs) And the number one movie in America was Death Race 2000. Um, 
We're very excited to show this movie tonight. It's the first Woody Allen movie to be shown at CineFamily. I hope it's not the first Woody Allen movie to be shown on your computer as you watch it right now because it's time to queue it up. Ladies and gentlemen, Diane Keaton and Woody Allen, Tony Roberts, and a cast of others in the 1977 classic Annie Hall. There we are, Annie Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, perfectly timed. I don't, I don't know that there's a movie that ends exactly when it's supposed to end like that. Uh, I, I don't know how long it is, 85 minutes or something? It really clips along. The editing is fantastic. Evidently, Woody Allen shot 30, 40, 50 hours of this movie. Uh, whoever edited it uh, really nailed it. You may, who was it? Oh, Frozen Bloom, thank you. Gordon Willis shot it, uh, and they, uh, everything's a one-shot until they get to the end, and then the scene in the, in the psychiatrist is an actual wall. It's not a split screen. Uh, when, when, uh, what do you know? It's all talking, the whole movie. They're either talking and then having sex, talking and walking, walking and talking, driving and talking. It's the talkiest movie of all time, and it clips along at a furious pace. You may have also noticed there's no music in the beginning or the end. Uh, unlike any other Woody Allen movie, which usually starts with Dixieland music and ends with Dixieland music, uh, it's the one time when he just clipped it on through. Um, Christopher Walken, uh, as Doug Benson, who's here tonight, uh, and is showing, what are you showing? You're showing something awesome. Skyfall. Skyfall. Uh, he, when are you showing that? Two weeks' time? Yeah, the 27th. The 27th. He's showing Skyfall on the 27th at the Doug Benson interruption. Uh, pointed out that uh, if it's not Christopher Walken's first psychotic role, it's the one that launched him into the rest of his psychotic <laughs> roles. He's in the movie for a minute and a half, maybe. Uh, in, the, in the split screen scene where you see Woody Allen's family go, uh, what are you doing town? And everybody's yelling and screaming and whatever. You hear Christopher Walken on the other side go, well, he's in 4-H. <laughs> Which is fantastically waspy on the other side. Uh, and then, I, I want to tell you this because I, you're an artist and I think you'll understand. He's already doing the delivery. And Jeff Goldblum, I'm sure you noticed at the end of the movie, four lines and he's already got the delivery. Rubble, is the film still playing or is it just the hideous audio? Yes, well, it is. Uh, also, at the very, very end of the picture, the tall girl with Woody Allen outside the movie theater, Sigourney Weaver, um, which makes it even more fun as a 70s movie because all those people weren't stars yet. Uh, and, does anyone want to talk about anything in the picture? I, I, I don't know that I can address anything, but I'm, I'm happy to if you will. For me, uh, it, it's the perfect Woody Allen movie in so much as uh, the first hour is stunning array of one-line jokes that just come blitzkrieging at you a thousand after another. The, the other reference I forgot to mention when we were starting was Cossacks. Uh, <laughs> but now I think you all have inferred what a Cossack is, or the implication being clear of what a Cossack is. I, I think I killed the Leopold and Loeb joke dead uh, by telling you that. Uh, it didn't make it any funnier for anyone, but now you'll go home and look it up, and in retrospect you go, that was quite humorous, Greg. There's nothing like a psycho psychosexual murder, rape, suicide, horrible thing that really make this movie fucking funnier than it was. Uh, uh, I, I just, uh, I feel like that and the fact that it combines honest emotional uh, relationship and it's the one Woody Allen movie where he allows himself to have a little bit of heart. The movies up till this point are Sleeper and Love and Death, Take the Money and Run and Bananas. They're very gaggy and they're wicked broad. And to put it back even further in context, because all y'all don't remember, it was Mel Brooks and Woody Allen who were the two giant filmmakers of the 70s that kept competing with each other in how funny their movies were. Um, uh, Young Frankenstein came out, I think, the year before, two years before this, and was is Mel Brooks' like perfect movie of a genre parody. And then comes Woody Allen's picture, and then the fight kind of dissipates. But in any case... Uh, um, uh, that was what was going on then. Uh, Ken Shapiro made the Groove Tube, and then there was the National Lampoon type movies. Yeah, and then all, all the movies that we know now—the uh, Judd Apatow, Fairley Brothers, uh, that type of broad comedy—all were born in in the late seventies, and uh, um, and like that. So, does anyone want to talk about anything? A question or anything? I, I think Robbo might be wandering the audience, like Sasquatch. Yes. I can't see anything because they've put an enormous Klieg light in my eye. Hi, Hi what's your name? It's Lewis. Hi, Lewis. Um, 
That mic doesn't work at all. He might as well have a toy microphone in his hand. It's fantastic. It's like we're pretending they're microphones. Hi, Lewis. How are you? Here, try this real this microphone. This one works. Like, oh, how about that? How about that? Um, Hello, Lewis. I, I know you don't want to talk about post any Hall, but well, we can. You mentioned this is his masterpiece. I want to talk about what most critics think is his most mature film, and especially about relationships, which is Manhattan. Uh, you know what? I could agree with that on one level, but if you've ever watched Manhattan, you never laughed your ass off. And I right. think this movie is funnier than Manhattan, quite frankly. And it's interesting that after this, he went through that uh, Bergman-esque period where he did interiors, which had no intentional laughs whatsoever. That's for and, certain. And, and then sort of matured into this, and then sort of fell back again into... The broader comedies. Right, then Danny Rose and whatnot, which is a a, a zesty little comedy. Uh, No, I'm not going to do it. Sorry, I was going to talk about his personal life during this movie, but it's it's too inconceivably vile to even delve into at this juncture. But yes, I agree with you. Uh, People think Manhattan's more mature because she says, what was it, Van Gogh? Oh my God, how how pretentious Van Gogh and all that. And I'm from uh, from Philadelphia and we believe in God. I don't even know what that means and all that. I remember seeing uh, Manhattan in the movie theater and seeing this in the movie theater, and this one fucking murdered the audience. And Manhattan made people go, hmm. Uh, and not that all comedy should make you fall down dead. Obviously, uh, you've seen comedy from me here tonight, and uh, you've realized that a lot of comedy can be paralyzingly horrible and uh, really like being read Poe by a misshapen troll while a, while a crow laughs at you. Thank you. Or is it just you fucking people? I'd like to think it's just you. Robbo, someone's raising his hand over there. I wonder if you'd give him the real mic and then the fake mic halfway through his question. <laughs> Robbo's running around. He'll also be performing in a Kansas tribute act a little bit later this week. Called Car- Carry on, my wayward sound man. There'll be peace when you are done. Yes, sir. What's your name? Uh, my name's Sean. And like you, I saw this uh, movie when it came out in high school. Yeah. I was a sophomore. And I saw this movie probably 12 times that summer. Only saw Star Wars three times. Um, Did it give you hope to carry on, Sean? Well, I was going to ask you if you had the same reaction, because for me, um, this movie simultaneously gave me hope, but in a strange way, because it showed that you could be friends after a breakup, relationships, you, you survive, you go on. But on the other hand, every girlfriend I met, I would compare her to Diane Keaton, and, you know, so, um, but my thing that I really took from this movie is that if you watch most romantic comedies, especially current ones, the woman always has to change for the male, mm-hmm. whether, what she's, whatever she's like at the beginning, she, guy, but her thing, and if Woody doesn't change with her, then she leaves, and she doesn't back down, she continues on with her life which back then was rare, and I think today is even more rare, that the woman is allowed to grow and be herself and not have to curtail herself to fit into some guy's life. I completely agree. And the fact that he doesn't get her at the end and then writes a fiction about where he does get her at the end makes this the best written of all of his relationship movies because a, a, a crappy writer, they come together at the end and oh, I saw her one more time and then oh my God, we fell in love and we made love and oh my God, we're happy now and we have two babies. Then it's all of a sudden it's a fucking Richard Curtis movie with Julia Roberts and shit like that. <laughs> and it isn't. It's a or, much, when Harry right, it's a, or, or When Harry Met Sally. Right. Or When Harry Met which is the most obvious, uh, uh, um, you know. But uh, the other thing is also that he allows Dan Keaton and some of the other characters to offer criticisms of his character. Oh, yeah. His mom. Maybe I could teach you to have more fun. Right. And the mom says, he's always too serious about everything. He read it in a book. (laughs) Uh, I was also going to ask you, did you ever eat at the Source restaurant? 
No, but I remember the Source Restaurant. Yeah. We were talking about it before the Sunset show. Sweet yeah, it's now, now it, Cabo Cantina. Yeah, Cabo Cantina. <laughs> yeah, when it was actually run by a I cult. You, I believe a movie is coming out about the cult that ran it and everything. Uh, so Robert, I think the Yob family or Frank Yob. Right. The Source. Yeah. And I, what it, also the other thing that makes this movie awesome. And thank you for everything you said. I think it's totally true. Um, it, it, it it's a, a dynamic performance by Diane Keaton, and not only does she change all the way at the end and become another person and become a, a self real as we would say here in Los Angeles, uh, chief of her own destiny, even though she's living in Lacey's house. Um, uh, the opening scene, after they play tennis, first of all, she's wearing that unbelievable fuck-off Catherine Hepburn turned-up collar when they play tennis with the little shorts, right? And they play that little tennis game, and then she comes out, and she's in the full vest with the tie and the hat and everything, and she goes, ha, 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 you jerk. Well, la-di-da, la-di-da. That's the scene where that wins the Oscar. Even though there's a million other scenes in the movie, that's her first scene with dialogue in the movie, and that's where she wins the fucking Oscar. It's so unbelievably strong those two minutes with her and do you need a ride oh, yeah. well, I have a I have a I have a I have a Volkswagen well why did you ask if you already in a that part is like uh, and I saw her interviewed once in Aspen years ago and uh, she said she was doing Irene Dunn and if anybody remembers Irene Dunn from the, uh, the 30s and 40s movies Irene Dunn did a lot of the uh, uh, similar mannerisms for instance Irene Dunn would go ah, 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 ah. That in scenes, and then when she gives when he gives her the underwear, she goes, oh, "Yeah, buddy, uh, 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 you more like for you." Uh, she throws lines away and stuff like that. It's a it's a beautifully realized role. I think she's fabulous in it. It's not it for me. Her sexiest movie, Sleeper. Uh, I, I think she looks amazing in Sleeper, and she's got the you know the white do rags on and all the '70s clothes and the slit up the dresses and the giant heels and shit. I fucking love her in that one, but um. Uh, she is amazing in this. Uh, they do, and they don't let women do that in modern movies. I saw a movie a couple of years ago, like 15 times, called um, uh, This Means War, and it had uh, Reese Witherspoon and two guys who were interchangeable, you know, like chess set pieces from a fucking thing you buy on the internet, and... Uh, it was she was a product tester, which is also in a Woody Allen movie. If you recall, he's a product tester in uh, uh, Take the Is it uh, Bananas? Uh, he, he has the basketball thing and the thing goes around. And it, it was the most soulless uh, corporate. You not only could you smell the meeting, you could smell the fucking like uh, um, uh, the pages. You could go. That page was green as you watched the movie. Thank you. That page was pink. It was hideous beyond measure. Uh, the uh, the antiseptic fucking clinical uh, dissection of the romantic comedy to be a series of beats where one person's not quirky enough, the person's so quirky, oh, when they click over. When this movie, everyone's, uh, as one of the descriptions put it that I was reading today, he's completely neurotic and she's equally neurotic. Uh, there's no starting ground in this where one of them's a normal person. They're both out of their fucking mind uh, to begin the movie. When she gets in the car and starts driving, and he's like, ha, ah, and they're driving through New York like the French Connection and shit like that. <laughs> Unbelievably good. Uh, I also read some hideous criticism about the kid scene in the classroom today, but I think you'll all agree, the kid scene in the classroom is genius. I, I, used, to be a, I used to be a heroin addict. Now I'm a methadone addict. <laughs> and someone wrote, and this is what's wrong with the world, those kids had no idea what they're saying. <laughs> No, they're actors. I got a clue for you. No actors know what they're fucking saying. Watch TV and movies all fucking day long. Find me two actors who know what the fuck they're saying, man. Do you think Al Pacino, when he did the Phil Spector movie, went, this part's deep for me. I don't quite get it. No, I got a wig. That's what's fucking happening with acting, you guys. All right? Who gives a shit if the kids knew what they were saying? It's fucking hilarious. He's also chancy and goes all over the yard, right? There's a cartoon sequence. There's an animated sequence. There's flashbacks. There's split screen. There's dual screen. Uh, there's forward. There's backwards movement. They go to the roller coaster. I was reading today. He said he saw, he was out with Gordon Willis and saw the bloody roller coaster with the house under it and went, oh, that's fucking going in the movie. Because <laughs> everyone thinks it's autobiographical, but it's not other than a few items in it. Woody Allen was a superb athlete and a teenage successful comedy writer. Know that. Before he was 20 years old, he was riding on Caesar's Hour. This was not an insecure person who fucking had a family like that and shit. Although, if you've ever seen Wild Man Blues and seen his actual family, it gives you a good idea into his own psychological state, I think. <laughs> one, 
more and then we'll fuck off into the night. No women ever want to talk. So funny at Cine Family. It's always dudes named Dave and Garth and shit. Oh, there's a girl. Hi. And you're wearing a plaid coverall thingy. Yeah, uh, sure. Oh, it's you. Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, so I've heard that a lot of people think that Diane Keaton's playing herself, but what I've heard is that that character is based on Judy Henske, who Woody Allen dated like in his youth. It, quite possibly, I'm sure it is, and, and it's combo platter of, I think, a lot of different people. I believe they'd broken up when the movie had started, right, so they actually weren't together anymore, and which is what makes Manhattan even weirder when they go in back into the relationship one more bloody time and shit like that. I'd always hoped that him and Tony Roberts were best friends, but there weren't in real life. I don't think they'd made a picture to, I know. Again, fooled by the magic of media. <laughs> Uh, I don't ever speak to anyone I've ever been on TV with ever again. I work with them once, and then I send them a poison pen letter with a schwatzticket in it. That's how I play. So just know that about everyone in show business. That's what happens. A chocolate bar comes with a dagger in it to your house. I'm joking, of course, but I realize it's late. And this movie was so long that your attention span has been taxed to its maximum power. Whatever, you bitches. I think it is. Um... They said Marshall Brickman and him walked around New York and there was like four or five different plots. And one was the murder mystery one, which they dropped. And then Woody Allen, of course, when the movie was over, said, oh, it turned out to be about me and this relationship with Annie Hall, and I'm disappointed. Because what would he say? This was a triumph, and I was never so happy. I won an Oscar. I almost went, but then I was going to send an Indian woman named Sasheen Littlefeather, but then I decided to go play Shitty Dixie instead. I love that they show his stand-up act in it, too. And that he's actually shaking hands and saying hi to people after his stand-up act. I don't think that was a documentary part. <laughs> he also said college crowds are so great. And Doug is here tonight, and I'm sure he'll back me up on this. College crowds aren't that fucking great. Not anymore. They're not getting Adlai Stevenson metaphysical joke. I looked into the soul of the boy next to me jokes in college anymore. Unless you're playing intellectual fucking Bryn Mawr State or whatever. What? The joke about Mahjong tiles. Yeah. When I saw that movie when I was a kid, I had no idea what that meant, but I laughed because it just sounds like a funny word. Then he, he mimes shoving a Mahjong tile in That's my mouth. favorite part is that he still does the hacky. Oh, here they go. Click, click. He puts no. Mahjong tiles in his mouth. Yeah. Right. When you, if you're going to Shen, you have no idea what Mahjong tiles are. And anybody on the West Coast had no fucking idea what Mahjong tiles were at all. You had to actually ask a Jew later in your life to translate a joke for you from a 1977 movie. I know. There's so, and when she orders pastrami with white bread with mayonnaise, and, and he goes... Which he does about ten times in the movie, if you notice. When Paul Simon comes over, he goes... <laughs> when he's out on a date with Shelley Duvall... <laughs> um, the date with Shelley Duvall, best moment ever. Uh, I was going to go, but my raccoon had hepatitis. <laughs> I dare you to sift through his last 15 movies and find one fucking scene that's as funny as my raccoon had hepatitis. Did it achieve heaviosity? I was in an Alice Cooper thing where six people came down with bad vibes. You know, you said Manhattan is not a laugh riot, and I agree with that, but it has my favorite. Which is? An exchange in a Woody Allen movie. is Someone says, uh, 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 I have orgasms, but my therapist told me they're the wrong kind. And Woody Allen says, uh, every orgasm I've ever had has been right on the money. <laughs> that is a fantastic joke. There's no topping that joke. All right, I grant you that one. One more question, and then we'll, we'll bug off. Sorry, Doug. We should have ended on you. A good comedian would have. Sadly, I'm hosting this fucking... For any film geeks out there, um, I just noticed this tonight, um, watching the credits, which is a benefit when you see it on the big screen, you can actually see the names. One is Christopher Walken's, Walken's name. Is yeah, his name's spelled Walken, yeah. Um, it's the misspelled. The is the girl with the VPL, played by Laurie Bird, who was in one of the great 70s movies, Two Lane Blacktop. Oh, fuck Yeah. Uh, with James Taylor and Warren Oates. Dennis Wilson. Dennis Wilson. Oates, yeah. um, the other is, I noticed that most of the landmarks he shows when they're in L.A. no longer exist. The Fat Burger that's on San City and 3rd Street. The uh, House of Exorcism um, yeah. movie theater. The Source restaurant. Um, Tale of the Pup. 
Tale of the Pup, right? Tale of the Pup. And they moved Tale of the Pup from where it was to like a block away. And then it, was, it went away like three or four years ago. Yeah, I think the Beverly Center killed it. Yeah, it was near the Beverly Center. I love the Tale of the Pup. Oh, it's in storage, someone says. Does she have a microphone? No. That was solid. It was really solid because we could hear her. Tale of the Pup was quite good, actually. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say that, like, you went there and came away and went, oh, my God, I'm a letter home I'm writing. But, uh... It was no pinks, though. No, it was no pinks. Nothing's pinks. When you're at pinks at 3.30 in the morning and there's a 350-pound guy wearing shower shoes whose eyes scream angel dust behind you... That's Los Angeles, baby. That's what Pink's is all about. A cream soda and a fucking double chili chaser at 3.30 a.m. When you're so mortally fucked, you have no business being standing. Much less being in public standing in shower shoes. I, sorry. No, go on, Dougie. I was just going to say... I, oh, there's Wayne Fetterman. Another thing about the end credits is I'd never noticed before that... Uh, the, the girl that's with uh, Paul Simon in the bar that he introduces as Petronia. Yeah, Petronia. That's her name. Is it really? That's I had never noticed that before. It's Petronia something, and then the, her, her title is, uh, you know, one of uh, Tony Lacey's friends. That's so great that he does that in the bar. This is Bobby, and this is Petronia, and you're like, Petronia? <laughs> wow. Did you want to say his... Yeah, I also noticed at the end that with, I guess, Sigourney Weaver outside the Thalia is Walter Bernstein. Oh, my God. Who is the guy that wrote the blacklisted writer, wrote the front. So I guess they had become friends doing that movie uh-huh. just a couple of years earlier, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Have right, because the front comes uh, is in, uh, what, 75 with Marty Ritt or whatever? Wow. And I don't know if you know this, but the best boy on the movie later went on to be Mayor Richard Reardon of Los Angeles. <laughs> They're so resistant to me tonight, you guys. I really need... I resisted that one, Greg, to be honest. Everyone resisted that one. I guess quite rightly. Hey, Greg? Yeah. Oh, Jack and Angelica. If you're 14 and you're listening in a, in a fort and your house made out of a blanket and some boxes... Jack and Angelica is Jack Nicholson and Angelica Houston. Who are they? Jack Nicholson was... Um, uh, a drug addict from the 60s. And uh, Angelica Houston uh, is on the show um, Slim Slam now on TV. Uh, she's on an awesome show with Katherine McCutcheon and a lot of people from a show called American Country Star. And uh, it's really good. It's based on Glee meets Broadway meets all that jazz meets 42nd Street. And it's called Slim Slam. And it's on... Uh, the UBC network right now. It's on after Mother Carrie's Chickens and right before Barefoot Executive. It's so fucking good. It's the story of a young girl who moves to the city and she's been in a lot of tabloids. And Angelica Houston plays an older character actress who'd like to have some insurance money as the last years of her life loom ahead of her. It's a fucking awesome show and you should take time out of your busy schedule. If you're watching anything with the word Deschanel in the titles, you need to check it check yourselves. That's all I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen. You're never going to get this time back at the end of your life and shit. You're never going to get this time back at the end of your life. You're going to be lying in a bed with a tube in your eyeball uh, or whatever at that point. It'll be like Mr. Sp- uh, Dr. McCoy. Someone will just wave over you with a, a stick that lights up. <laughs> They've got about 45 seconds left, and you're going to lay there and go, why did I watch fucking New Girl? For real. <laughs> this has been the smartest man in the world, Fruitcast. Wayne Fetterman and Doug Benson have been here. We'll be back next time for more of our fine adventures. I wish you nothing but good luck.